This 10 Talks podcast is a production of the 10 Words Project from WUOT-FM and the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. Welcome to 10 Talks Bedtime Stories. I'm your host, Brittany Crocker. Here at Bedtime Stories, we've been highlighting some of the most common responses from people in Knoxville's communities to our current 10 words question, what keeps you up at night? Tonight's Bedtime Story, we're going to talk about mental health in the workplace. Now, the National Institute on Mental Health says 26 out of every 100 employees currently in the United States workforce need some kind of mental health care, and not treating mental health issues can actually cost employers money. But the Partnership for Workplace Mental Health says that only 15% of employers train supervisors to recognize symptoms of mental health issues in their employees and, and then intervene. So for tonight, we're going to be joined by Ben Harrington, the Executive Director of the Mental Health Association of East Tennessee. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Um, I'd imagine that just given how much time we do spend at work, it, it does seem like it would be normal that, that works on our minds so much, but is there a threshold at which this kind of anxiety and taking home your, your stress about work might become abnormal? Uh, yeah, it, it can be. You know, it's kind of a fair trade, though, because we take stressors from home in our personal lives to the workplace, and that can kind of intervene a little bit in our productivity at work. So it's fair game that when we go home, we may have things on our mind from work, whether it was an interaction with a coworker, maybe it was uh, a interaction with our supervisor that maybe wasn't uh, handled as well as everyone would have liked, um, or maybe it was negative about your performance, or maybe you've got things weighing heavily on your mind about things you have to work on for the following day, maybe the next week, that sort of thing. Is there a point, though, that maybe this could this could move from normal to being maybe a mental health concern? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things about stress is we bring stress with us to work and from work to home. And when we have too much stress, we tend to do something called rumination. We ruminate. We think, we think about stuff, okay? And so I don't want to put too much psycho babble terminology out there for, the, for your listening audience, but we think about too much stuff that we have to do, or we worry about did we uh, do something that we needed to do that day? Uh, did we forget something that would be vitally important? Did our boss say, hey, don't forget to get me such and such, and you're questioning whether you remembered to do it or not. So a lot of that stuff can be um, impactful for that individual because if you think about it too much, then when you lay down to go to sleep, you might be unable to really get to sleep or because you've been questioning yourself when you've started to lay down to get to sleep, then maybe you fall asleep but then you pop back up later and you only ended up having two hours of sleep. So too much rumination is the issue because it can interfere with your sleep cycle and you really need seven to eight hours of sleep. And it seems like that, just the lack of sleep in general, might be one of the things that could influence work performance. Exactly right. Exactly right. So when I talk with folks about stress and workplace performance, I always have to make sure we have the conversation about 
Uh, are you able to get to sleep and stay asleep? Or do you have trouble falling asleep? If you're not able to fall asleep so easily because you're worried about stuff or you're not able to get to sleep and stay asleep, then we have a sleep problem. And we have to look at, well, what's the longevity of that sleep issue? Is it a real sleep issue like a sleep disorder, like insomnia or restless leg syndrome or sleep apnea? So is it a real sleep disorder or is it more you got stuff going on at work and it's kind of keeping you up at night? So if there's too much stress, the person's not going to sleep well. And then we get into the bag of tricks where folks try to cope and they cope poorly because they try maybe to get to sleep by having a couple of three glasses of wine at night or a couple of beers before they go to sleep. And all that does is it helps them fall asleep because of the depressant effect of the alcohol. But then the alcohol is metabolized and it forces them to wake up because they have to go to the restroom. So a coping mechanism usually turns out very poorly and it further causes less sleep. So are are some of these coping mechanisms some of the first indicators of a mental health issue in the workplace or are there other um, other symptoms besides maybe lack of sleep that might might pop up? Well, the, I wouldn't say it's one of the first indicators. What I would say is that, you know, you have to look at the whole picture. Uh, sleep problems is indicative of a number of mental health issues, okay? Um, too much stress and too much worrying about what is stressful uh, can also be an issue. If the person does not uh, develop good coping skills for what's stressful, then it could lead directly towards the onset of depression or anxiety, that sort of thing. I actually found some interesting um, statistics on coping mechanisms when it mm-hmm. comes to anxiety disorders from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Right. And it says that women are more likely than men to to eat more or talk to family and friends about issues where men are more likely to engage in um, more frequent sexual activity or use illicit drugs, but that there's common ground in, in consuming caffeine, smoking, exercising more frequently, taking over-the-counter prescription medication, and consuming more alcoholic beverages. Not right. not all of those listed sound negative, though. Well, it, it depends on uh, where and how used. For example, a glass of wine or a beer uh, in used in moderation might not be so bad. But obviously, if the person is really worked up and they had a horrible day and they are pounding uh, beers or glasses of wine and they have way too many and they get uh, intoxicated, then that's going to have a reverberating effect because what you get is you get an alcohol-induced sleep, which isn't real sleep. It doesn't qualify. And all you end up doing is having to wake up to go to the restroom and then you're wide awake. So it doesn't really get you what you were looking for out of the deal. If the person is coping and they're smoking uh, cigarettes, you know, Nicotine is a stimulant, so nicotine can actually have the opposite effect that you want. First of all, for the individual who's stressed, the nicotine may help them cope with the immediate stressor, right, and calm their nerves, but eventually the buildup of nicotine in the blood system is a stimulant, and if you 
uh, do smoke, which I advise against, but if you do smoke and you smoke too late in the evening, then all you've done is you've added a stimulant to your, your bloodstream. But exercising and even engaging in more frequent sex, if it's with your, your partner, um, and prescription medication, if, if it's indeed prescribed for mm-hmm. this specific condition, sounds like it's not a horrible way to cope. No, exercise is actually very good. What you do need to do um, with exercise um, is find the right time of the day to exercise for you. Uh, because what you, you do end up uh, achieving when you exercise is it, you release all sorts of chemicals in your body when you're exercising. And it's sort of like the scrubbing bubble effect. You kind of clean, clean out your uh, arteries a little bit and you feel pretty good as you've exercised. Well, if you exercise too late in the day, say at 8 o'clock at night, and you usually want to try to go to bed about 9 or maybe 9.30, well, then you've released all those feel-good chemicals in your brain, and they've kind of jacked you up, okay? And so they provided you uh, a little bit of stimulus from the adrenaline release. And so that could impede your uh, ability to fall asleep. So you have to find the right time for you to exercise. And that's why a lot of folks will say, okay, if you end your work day at 5 o'clock, what is the right time to exercise? Is it maybe at 6 o'clock or 6.30 or 7? You know, I would steer more towards that time frame than the later because the, the later you exercise, the more it's going to provide a stimulation for your brain and not the ability to wind things down and get ready for sleep. The same is true for electronic use and stuff like that. You shouldn't use electronics late, late in the evening. As far as, I guess, um, employees having work-related stress and mm-hmm. things coming down from them, what is the, does the employer have a responsibility here? Well, it's kind of a two-pronged uh, set of responsibilities. Yeah, because they can't just be like, oh, well, then do less work. You know, that's right. not how the workplace works. But surely there's, there's something there that they have to be able to see, right? Right. The, the employer's role here, I think, is... Um, they need to be concerned about the overall health and well-being of their employees. It's a selfish reason because if you're healthy and able to present at work and do what you're supposed to do, whether you're making widgets or whether you're working here at the radio station or whether you're working in an office wearing a suit and tie, doesn't matter. If you're able to present and do what you're supposed to do, uh, that's what they want you to do. They're selfish. They need you present. They need you there. They need you to, to work like heck during the, that work time frame. They don't want and don't need an employee to be unhealthy in any way that could impair your productivity. And so that's why I like to tell employers they need to think about the big picture because the employee that becomes unhealthy will start to cost them a lot of money because they're not able to get as much done. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about sleep, so let me give you an example. There was a a sleep study done years ago, and what they did was they took a number of people and they deprived them of their sleep. And the next day, they gave them an administrative task, and it was a simple series of uh, addition problems, actually. And they gave them this this task, and those who were sleep-deprived took twice as long to complete the task. 
So the, the moral of that research study is if you're sleep deprived, it's going to take you twice as long to perform all sorts of um, administrative tasks. And so it means for employers, they do need to care about their employees and what prevents them from getting enough sleep. And hence, if stress is preventing you from getting enough sleep, they need to be concerned because it means I'm not going to be as productive in the workplace. I'm not going to get uh, as many widgets made that day or whatever it might be. And it will cost the, the company dollars. Would it would it cost them more um, in the long run than to leave them untreated than they would save by not addressing it? Actually, that's the interesting phenomenon. It, 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 and we've we've got the ability to work with any employer, big or small, and run a statistical model on that. Uh, and literally, employers all across the country can use this. It's just a, a DVD that you put into your computer, and you enter all the data about your company, where you are, and type and size and all that stuff. And you answer all those demographic questions about your company, you can figure out what it costs you by not helping your employees get the help they need. But it literally costs a, an employer about $2,000 a year if an employee needs help and is not getting the mental health care that they need. And that would be after they got help. Okay, so if we got you into treatment, you know, it still would mean that the company would be losing uh, money every year because... Um, uh, they didn't get you the help that ne- they needed or you needed. So how can supervisors how can supervisors and employers then learn to recognize these these symptoms or learn to recognize when someone is having a mental health issue or is severely depressed or right. is very anxious in the workplace? Okay. Well, one of the things I, I try to tell uh, employers is, first of all, w- we need to make sure everyone understands we're not trying to train anyone to be a psychiatrist. Okay, or a psychologist, et cetera. What supervisors need is the ability to supervise and to know what they observe is a problem, whether it's a problem with productivity, whether it's on a manufacturing line or, or what have you, or in a white-collar job with getting reports done at a specific time, uh, that sort of thing. So they have to be able to observe the person's productivity to gauge, are they getting the job done or not? It's pretty simple, actually. So are they getting the job done? That's all they need to observe. And if the person's not getting the job done, then they have to have the ability to have a conversation. And this is the difficult part for supervisors, because normally supervisors are picked because they're good at doing something, but they're not necessarily so good at having the conversation with the employee. So uh, I observe you're not getting your work done. You, you had three reports due uh, on the 15th of the month, and you didn't get them done on the 15th of the month. They were all done on the 25th, the 28th, et cetera, so you were late. Well, so I, I can observe that you're late. So how do I um, address your tardiness with the report? So I have to ask the to uh, have a conversation with you. Hey, come visit me before you leave today, okay? And it's easy peasy. Um, 
not threatening. I'm not confronting you in front of a crowd. So I bring you in, Brittany, and I ask, okay, Brittany, I, I need you to explain something to me. You've been here five years. For five years, I could depend on you getting these reports done on time. You didn't get these reports done on time, and this is not just the first month. This is like the fourth month and the last six months they haven't been done on time. Tell me what's going on. So on one hand, as a supervisor, I'm supporting you because I've recognized you've been a good employee, but I'm also confronting the change. I've observed a change. You haven't been productive. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking in a leading way for you to tell me what's going on. What if I was in a situation at, at, in a in a job that had very volatile job security, whereas mm -hmm. I was constantly worried about about losing my job. Right. Um, and and then I just started seeing this vicious, or you started seeing a vicious cycle, but didn't know it was a vicious cycle right. in which maybe that stress is impacting my ability to get things done on time, and I think I'm going to lose right. my job so much right. that I. How how did how can you counsel people in that experience? Well, those are very much legitimate concerns, and if it is um, a somewhat volatile employment situation where a lot of folks are feeling like um, their job security is endangered, maybe there's been talk of layoffs or downsizing, that sort of thing. That's legitimate, and a good supervisor should be willing to engage in conversation with you about that. And so if I have confronted you about your performance and your retort is, you know, I'm extremely stressed and I think everyone else around here is stressed because we don't know, is the company going to keep its doors open or are we going to do layoffs and stuff? Well, then the, the supervisor should be able to respond to that. If they are a good supervisor, they should know what's coming. and. You know, when you confront any employee about performance, there's going to be a number of responses. Acknowledging what's going on is one of them. Denial of the problem is another. Blaming on others um, or situations can be another response, too. So that supervisor needs to understand that the response from the employee could be, right on target, telling them exactly what's going on, or it could be some deflection. And the supervisor needs to recognize deflection for what it is. And I'm sorry, that's sort of like a psychobabble term, but to refocus right back to the problem, okay? And to acknowledge, okay, Brittany, I understand you're stressed, and you should be stressed because, you know, the company has been making some changes and is planning on doing some downsizing or, or has downsized already. You know, acknowledge the, the issue. You're not the only one there in the in the workplace who is stressed about it. And so the supervisor should acknowledge being stressed or that others are stressed too because that would be stressful. But then the supervisor should suggest some means as to how to deal with the current situation. And the current situation, as we've mentioned it, is you've been late on your reports. And so that's not helpful in any workplace, regardless of what it is and where it is. It's not helpful in the current situation. If you feel stressed and maybe your job is, is in jeopardy, well, 
that would kind of indicate a reason why you need to return to star status and be the employee that shines and gets everything done when they're supposed to. So I understand that your organization then works to raise awareness and mm -hmm. works to kind of like advocate on um, various mental health issues, but one of those is going into workplaces and talking about it. Right. Are you able to talk to employers and supervisors and companies about at what point they should recognize um, certain symptoms and then recommend they seek care? Well, and that's part of the uh, supervisor training we, do, we uh, are able to provide. Teaching supervisors how to have that confrontational uh, discussion with their employee is an important thing because I don't want supervisors to just get too trigger happy and want to uh, terminate employment. What I want is for a supervisor to recognize someone's performance has not been what it has been or needs to be improved and to give that employee the opportunity to right the ship and get things back to where they were. And so how you do that is you confront the employee with the changed workplace performance and then you support them and you uh, suggest that if the company has um, health benefits or EAP benefits that you know if they are overly stressed and, and there's some issues there maybe they might want to talk to their doctor and see what help that they they can get in that regard or maybe go to the employee assistance program if the company has one a trick I always try to teach supervisors to do is to tell their employees, you know, you're not going to be the uh, first employee around here to use our EAP. And that's a service that's designed to help employees deal with stress. And every employee deals with stress. Some are dealing with it well. Some are dealing with it extremely poorly. Some are using alcohol to cope or other substances to cope. Um, Everybody has financial stressors, right? And that's actually financial stressors are the number one reason why people go to an employee assistance program because they're having trouble paying their bills, they're having uh, arguments with their uh, significant other, usually about money, and it's stressful. So... In terms of what you're looking at when you look at workplaces and when you talk to them about awareness, what would a best case scenario, perfect world, perfectly mentally healthy workplace look like then in terms of mm -hmm. communication? Okay. Uh, best case scenario, the uh, employer provides health benefits. Health benefits includes mental health and addiction treatment and all of it's at a parity basis. That means, you know, there's no Mickey Mouse caps on number of units of service or dollars spent on, say, depression treatment or addiction treatment, that sort of thing, when compared to heart disease or diabetes, et cetera. So from the, the policy side, the benefits are equitable. Um, I would want the employer to also to have a employee assistance program. And what that's about is literally it's a free counseling program. Um, they pre-fund, they pay the EAP uh, to provide you with like 10 sessions a year, whether you use them or not, okay? But it's kind of a nice little fallback because if you are living paycheck to paycheck 
and you do have that confrontational discussion with your supervisor and they kind of suggest, you know, you might want to talk to your doctor or go to the EAP, well, there's no reason not to go. The barrier of money is gone because they prepaid for it. So you can get good counseling, help you figure stuff out. And um, so then the other side of that is really, well, what does that employer do with regards to workplace health promotion? Do they have a wellness program? Does the wellness program provide, you know, uh, lunch and learns? Do they provide physical activity opportunities? Are there discounts to use the fitness club? Or do they prepay for everyone to go to the fitness club? That sort of thing. Does the company participate in walkathons and all that stuff? Do they do health fairs, benefit fairs? Do those fairs include mental health? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, do they have a um, notion as to what to do to create like a stress reduction program at work? You know, is that, for example, uh, where we are out off Cedar Bluff Road, there's a company next door to us. They bought the building and they put in a walking trail around the building so that, you know, folks can uh, be encouraged to get out of their chair at work every 45 minutes and walk around. You know, that's going to have lots of benefits, not only from a mental health perspective, but from a physical health perspective. So they encourage that. And so if a group of people wants to go out and take a a walk around the campus of the work site and do a lap or two and take 10 minutes, they do that. That's great. That's promoting not only their physical well-being, but their mental health too. What kind of obstacles might keep uh, companies from achieving this this best case scenario, mental mentally healthy workplace? Well, I, I think there are a number of obstacles. First of all, um, I think sometimes uh, at the uh, it's called the C suite for corporate suite. Okay, at that level, the C suite level, usually it's the CEO and maybe the CFO the chief benefits officer, that sort of thing. They make a lot of decisions about stuff like health insurance and benefits and stuff like that. And sometimes at that level, you know, they're looking at annually the opportunity to renew health insurance for the employees. And there's always going to be a a premium increase. So they see this premium increase might be 12%, and they start freaking out because it's – money that's going to affect the bottom line of the company. And so they look at that, and then they, uh, they're they getting kind of tense. And then the insurance agent for the, the company that sells them the policy says, oh, yeah, you know, you could save money by you know, limiting certain benefits. Well, then folks have taken off their uh, hat uh, where they're going to try to provide the employees with the best coverage, and now they're solely focused on, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to save some some money here. And so they make a decision that's about money on the insurance side where they haven't thought through the, the really beneficial cost of having a uh, appropriate health care plan. And have you seen that maybe get better or worse since the passing of the National Health Care Act? Um, hmm. You know, a lot of companies make have to review their um, their uh, policy decisions like that. And um, right now, what you've got is a lot of companies that have have 
started to squeeze their benefits a little bit more, maybe increase their co-pays um, so that they can keep um, a, a broader base of benefits. Some companies are of size where they have to provide parity benefits and some are not of that size. And, and so they're going to, the smaller ones are going to continue to find ways to to minimize their expense. And unfortunately, mental health uh, benefits and substance abuse benefits may be at risk because of that. But they can eventually turn into physical health problems. Oh, that's exactly right. Exactly right, yeah. Um, for example, a um, untreated individual with uh, perhaps an eating disorder, you, know, you don't provide um, parity mental health benefits uh, maybe that eating disorder does not go treated or treated the way it should, and then what do you have? You literally have the chronic wasting away of an individual, um, um, and it's a medical issue uh, because their mental health issue is is causing all sorts of medical problems. The other part of it is so many mental health issues actually co-occur with medical problems. And so what we like to remind employers is don't be so hasty on making decisions about um, the cost of mental health in your benefit plan because if you have 100 employees that are all women, guess what? You're going to have 25 women with depression. And you also need to understand that if we don't treat that depression, then we're going to be into a real pickle because depression co-occurs with diabetes, cancer, heart disease, and the successful outcome of treating any of those chronic medical conditions won't, won't be able to happen if you don't treat the co-occurring depression that can occur with those illnesses. So was that a statistic about 25 out of 100 women? Well, 25% of women... One in four women uh, can uh, or do suffer from uh, depression. So if, if the employer is all women and it's 100 women and you're going to have 25 employees with depression. And so you have to be able to recognize folks may struggle and encourage them to use their health benefits. We're not going to have supervisors or want supervisors to diagnose anybody, but we want to nudge people to see their their doctors to get any help that they might need. And what we try to make sure employers understand is, you know, the most costly conditions that they are going to provide insurance for are diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. And a lot of folks will have untreated depression, and they won't be making any progress in treating those other conditions. So if you're not getting good health outcomes and treatment of diabetes, Start peeling back the layer of the onion and find out what's going on. Maybe the person is depressed, and that's why they can't provide good um, diabetes care management and control their diabetes. So on the side of the individual, then, what what tips would you have for someone that's experiencing um, just immense stress or anxiety from work? Well, first thing, I, I think uh, anybody who's dealing with stress at work needs to understand if they are stressed— surely they are not alone, okay? And I, I think a, an awful lot of good can come from talking with others in that workplace and be honest about what they're experiencing, okay? Um, because, you know, there can be lots of um, 
others that have experienced similar stressful situations previously or are currently stressed from the exact same thing right right then and there. And that can be helpful because learning from others who've experienced the same situation may be uh, instructional for you. And maybe they've coped with things differently and they've been able to uh, juggle and manage things a little bit better than, than you were able to at the time. So certainly talking with others. Um, the other thing is really learning how to take care of yourself, all right? Um, eating right, getting it, and that means not eating a bunch of fatty foods and all that stuff because that's going to kind of keep you up at night too. Mm-hmm. Eat that stuff during the day, all right, lunchtime. Um, exercising at the right time of day, not the wrong time of day. You know, if you wanted to, you could exercise first thing in the morning before you went to work, and that would provide you with an adrenaline boost that would make you uh, have more energy during the daytime or before your shift of whatever the work is. The other thing is really getting enough sleep. And, you know, if someone's got a lot of stress that's preventing them from getting sleep, getting to sleep or staying asleep, then they really have to look at their whole uh, sleep routine we call it sleep hygiene. They have to look at everything. When they go to bed, when they get up, they need to try to find a way to regularize that. And so what I try to tell folks is don't go to bed if you're not tired. Find a way to go to bed when you're tired. And then keep all the distractions out of your bedroom. That means the dog, the cat, all the electronics, that sort of thing. If one of you uh, say if you're married and your your spouse likes to watch TV in bed well, and you're trying to sleep, that's stimulation no matter whether you've got your eyes shut or not. You're hearing the TV or you're, you're sensing the, the light changes in that bedroom from the TV changing channels. So you've got to get all those distractions out of your, your, your bedroom and, and your sleep routine. And so you should, about an hour before you try to go to bed, literally be finding a way to wind things down, whether that means you, you take a soak in the tub, you read a book, you turn off all the distractions, all that stuff. You try to have wind down time for you. That's the best thing. Now, if you try all that and you still can't get to sleep or you have trouble waking during the night, then um, it, it is time then to talk to your doctor. Your doctor may very well offer to prescribe something to help you sleep, you don't necessarily have to go that route. They're going to want to talk about your sleep routine, your sleep hygiene anyway, but you could also um, uh, take an over-the-counter melatonin, um, which, you know, we all need from time to time if if um, our sleep cycle gets out of whack. And mm-hmm. uh, I've taken sli- uh, melatonin um, for some time. When my sleep cycle got way out of whack and I was waking up in the middle of the night and couldn't go back to sleep. So taking a melatonin to help you fall asleep, take it 15 minutes before you go to bed, then climb in the bed, boom, out, and I've been able to sleep. And I did that for about a month, and then my sleep cycle got totally fixed. And so it's it's uh, one where I've been able to regularize things seven days a week, go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time, and... Um, uh, I've been able to take care of myself better that way. All right. Thank you. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add? Well, uh, certainly um, 
you know, if there are things that are troubling you and keeping you up, what you can also do is jot down what those are because those things are in your mind for a reason. You're questioning, do I have stuff I've got to work on or did I take care of certain things, that sort or of thing. One of the responses we got is, um, and I'm not sure if it was humorous or serious, but I think everyone can relate to it a little bit. One of our responses to what keeps you up at night is that uh, I think he said, everyone will find out that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and well. I feel like that a lot at work. I think a lot of people probably do. <laughs> well, you know, our competence to perform certain jobs is one that comes about based upon our experiences and our ability to perform. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to that sleep study I told you about. If you're not getting enough sleep, then cognitively you are so impaired it takes you twice as long to do something. And if it, if it takes you twice as long to do something very simple, then your competence can be absolutely questioned by anyone who might see it takes you that long to do a very simple task. And um, so I, I think that can be a legitimate concern, but it can be addressed by making sure you take care of yourself, you get enough exercise, you sleep right, you get enough, you get enough sleep, and um, that if you are thinking about stuff you need to accomplish, start writing lists and list what you need to do today and list what you need to do tomorrow and then you know, cross those things off your list so you can then know, I've done it. All right, thank you so much. Thank you. We're gonna take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll hear from Doug Winrick, an employee assistance professional, to tell us a bit more about the counseling side of workplace mental wellness. <laughs> Welcome back to Bedtime Stories. We're here with Doug Winrick. Doug is an employee assistance professional and licensed mental health provider. Hi, Doug. Hi, Brittany. How are you? I'm good. Very well. So you see a lot of employees at various companies for mental health and wellness concerns. Can you tell us a little bit about what concerns you see the most? Sure. Uh, you know, I would think that uh, the thing that we see the most are people who are struggling with just simple stressors in their life. You know, mm -hmm. things become overwhelming to them, uh, may range anything from relationship issues to child care issues, health type things, elder care, all kinds of things that we see. What usually prompts someone to come in to see you? Well, it usually hits a point, and, and that's the hardest part, is for people to reach out to help, uh, to get help. And so uh, what we find is people just hit a point where they just can't keep going the way they're going. And so they uh, pick up the phone and uh, uh, either the prodding of someone else saying, you know, maybe you should uh, take a look at getting some help with that, or else just uh, reach out and say, I really need help with this. Do you see a lot of um, employee intervention, or is it more family intervention? Uh, probably split down the middle. You know, sometimes it's just the individual. They'll see a brochure uh, in the workplace, and they'll just pick up the brochure and call the phone number. And, uh, and I always tell people that that's the hardest part of reaching out for help is picking up the phone and making the call. 
So what is the extent of the care that you provide? Uh, we'll uh, do an initial assessment with the person and see where they're at and then do a, assess them for danger, whether it's danger to self or danger to others, and we'll take care of that promptly and very quickly. Uh, you know, it's very rare, but sometimes people need an intervention immediately if they're in danger of harming themselves. And uh, we'll get them uh, to an emergency room and get them the help that they need for immediate assistance. But most of the time, they're just reaching out and say, I'm not sure what to do. think it might be good for me to talk to a counselor. So we will do the assessment and then uh, work with the local providers in the area to get them in with someone or else see them ourselves. So do you find that most of um, these concerns stem from the workplace? Do you think they stem from home or from other issues? I, most of the time, they're uh, a combination of both can be a combination of both. But a lot of times we'll see people who will have multiple things going on at home. You know, uh, there'll be any of those things we just talked about. It could be uh, we're seeing a lot of people who have three to four generations living under one household. And so sometimes that can come out sideways in the workplace. And so uh, a lot of times there'll be a manager will call us and say, I have Jane Doe here in the chair with me and, uh, you know, in my office that's needing some help. I'm not sure what's going on, but wondered if you could talk to them. So then we'll have the HR person or the manager leave the room and then we'll do an assessment over the phone and get them the resources they need around them. So you'll see a lot of supervisors kind of picking up on these mental health cues and, and then calling you? Or sure, they're right there on that. They're our first line of defense and then people's first line of resource is uh, a lot of times they will see that happening. And we, we do trainings with uh, management teams uh, at companies to let them know what to recognize, you know, whether it be anxiety or depression or chemical dependency, um, different things. What other kind of things do you tell them to look for behavior-wise? Uh, it's usually just uh, those things that build up in people. So uh, maybe they begin to pull away from their coworkers. They used to go to lunch with everybody and be, you know, joined in. But uh, maybe they isolate themselves out now. And they've begun to not go to lunch and not talk as much and, and just sort of feel withdrawn to the workforce. And so a lot of times and to their coworkers. You know, the relationships aren't what they used to be. So when you train supervisors on how to kind of recognize this, what does their initial first step in look like? Is it just sitting down with them or calling someone in the office? Sure. Uh, it could be anything. Sometimes the person has an emotional break at work. You know, they just start crying and, and can't control it. And so uh, they are, you know, taken in with the manager and the manager talks with them and, and helps to de-escalate the situation. And, uh, and then they'll reach out and say, you know, we're not sure what's going on, but uh, wondered if you could talk with this individual and help them get some help. I imagine that's very difficult for both parties because um, if someone just, you know, has a breakdown at work, they're probably already feeling vulnerable and stressed. And then they get called in the supervisor's office, they're, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And that's, you know, and uh, the more we can normalize that and, and let the person um, know that that's okay, that, uh, you know, there's people around that really want to help them. And, uh, you know, we talk to the supervisors about being that bridge, being the bridge to help them get to the people who can help them with, the, uh, with whatever it is that's going on in their life. Have you ever encountered um, any, any clients or people that have sought counseling coming from workplaces that aren't so friendly to that, where maybe 
um, they have very low job security or maybe they, they can't talk to their supervisor about things and they've sought you out on their own? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we'll get people, you know, some people aren't great at that. Uh, and I'll, I'll use grief as an example. Sometimes people that have lost someone close to them will go through a situation and, and they've just not been able to get through the grief that they're having and sometimes people aren't great at helping people with that and so they'll get the statements like well you know it's been three months shouldn't you just be over it you know well that's not real helpful and not something that uh, and so it's good sometimes those people will reach out and say I'm not getting the support from the people around me and I just need to get some help to work through this grief. Is your role then just kind of listening, or do you provide advice and self-care tips as well? Uh, we do a lot of listening, but yeah, then we, we move into what I would call the directive phase to where we help that person uh, know what the next step needs to be. And sometimes it is, you know, uh, uh, medicine, you know, there'll be psychotropic drugs that maybe the person, they have untreated anxiety disorder, or they'll have an untreated depression going on for whatever reason and they haven't reached out to anyone so we'll get them lined up first off to get them stabilized and so uh, maybe do you working, guys prescribe that or do you just refer we them do not to prescribe physician? it so we would uh, refer them to their primary care physician or to a psychiatrist if they you know if uh, they want to see a psychiatrist we can uh, uh, refer them to a prescribing entity. And is that usually covered by like an employee assistance type of insurance or how does that work? That would be covered under their mental health benefit, whatever the mental health benefit is with their insurance provider. And do most companies have mental health benefit with, um, in addition to, you know, traditional company health care? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, most uh, health plans within companies have a mental health benefit to that, uh, to where they would use that to go see the psychiatrist or to cover their doctors, their physicians. Uh, a lot of physicians are great at dealing with the mental health side and helping getting them either anti-anxiety medications or anti-depression medications. Are there um, behavioral or lifestyle uh, changes that you, that you recommend for people when they come in? Sure, I mean, we you know do the assessment and when they actually are coming in and we're sitting face to face with them, uh, we'll find out what those stressors are. And so it, it may be that if they have someone who's suffering from a chemical dependency in their household living with them, uh, a lot of times with the family member will work with them to get them in with Al-Anon or another community resource to where they can go and learn from other people who are going through the same type of situations, what it's like and, and what they can do to help work, live with someone who uh, has a chemical dependency. So if if you do encounter an employee whose stressors are stemming from someone else in the family that might need mental health care, um, are they then able to come in under the employee assistance program and use you or one of the other EAP counselors um, for a family member? Sure. Many, many times the employee assistance benefit is available to uh, the individual employee and anyone in their household. So, so back to, I guess, kind of self-care tips, uh, what, what kind of things do you recommend people to change about their, their daily routines when they're in the workplace? Uh, well, I always look at it as, you know, we look at those things that people are sort of stuffing in and holding inside and uh, those things that then at night keep them awake at night. You mm -hmm. know, those things that uh, they may be sit, uh, laying there in bed and their head, they just can't get 
the thoughts to, to quit racing through their head and they keep cycling over things. So a lot of times I'll work with them to help them slow down and compartmentalize and to externalize what it is that they're sort of holding inside and to uh, talk about it and to get it out. And that's one of the big benefits of counseling, that people are allowed to feel what they feel when they walk through the door and to describe and talk about things and get it externalized because sometimes when we hold that in and we stuff it in that's when later it can come out sideways in other ways whether that be inappropriate anger or whether it be just uh, emotional breakdown do you do you see a stigma at all that maybe kind of surrounds um, counseling and using the eap program i think that uh, i've been in this for quite a while now uh and there used to be a bigger stigma than there is now. I think people are very are getting more and more used to reaching out and saying, uh, I need some help. Um, I don't see that stigma as much as it used to be. It's still there. And I'll still get people that will come in and say, well, I'm not really sure that I believe in this counseling stuff. you know." And, uh, and it was really hard for me to reach out because I don't want people to look down on me for, for reaching out for help. But I'm seeing less and less of that now. You know? That's awesome that it's kind of like progressing. And I think also probably as companies start to to make strides in making employees know that these resources are available, as you said before, like flyers or brochures they have around the workplace. Um, it's, it's not so much like a thing you don't hear about it as it is just the same as, I don't know, using the resource room. Sure. And it, it's great as we get uh, individuals that the more they talk about this in the workplace, and, and normalize it, and if they can have the EAPs come in, the AP individuals come in and talk about it and do orientations to the employees, sometimes those stigmas come uh, because there's information we don't know and things we don't have. So if we can get in there and talk about it before the crisis, that makes it much, much better And uh, to sort of normalize that and get that stigma away from it to where it's just a, a, a natural reach out for help. What kind of advice would you have for someone they may, may be struggling with this right now? Uh, just uh, think about, you know, what it is that they would really like to have happen in their life and just to sort of come to the realization that I really can't deal with this on my own and I really do need to get some help. So uh, talk to trusted individuals around them, whether that be, you know, your best friends or pastors or whoever it is in your life. Uh, uh, counselors other counselors just individuals who are around you coaches a lot of times we'll get teenagers and if they can go talk to a coach about certain things going on and that coach sometimes can make a reach out to the mental health people that they know within the school systems and things so any of that to just get them to talk about it and get them to begin the process of, of letting other people in to know that there's some things going on thank you so much thank you very much for having me here today I hope you enjoyed your bedtime story. Be sure to tune in to 10 Talks next week for Carrying the World on Your Shoulders, where we'll talk about climate change and um, the endangered honeybee population and clean energy and some of these environmental issues we've been hearing from you guys about. And remember, you can always find out more information about the 10 Words Project on our website, wuot.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at 10words with two N's, where we'll publish some of your anonymous responses to our current question every day. We also keep a running archive on Instagram. Again, that's at 10words. And there you can see photos of all of our responses, um, the bizarre ones, the serious ones, the thought-provoking ones, uh, every single one. 
Thanks a bunch to Ben Harrington and Doug Winrick for coming on the show this evening, and a big thanks to everyone on the 10 Words team and all the good folks over at the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. The music for Bedtime Stories is by Todd Steed and the Sons of Fear. That's P-H-E-R-E, kind of like Sons Fear. If you like it, you can hear a whole lot more of it on Bandcamp. Sleep tight, Knoxville.